commentators have a great uh, field day with today's gospel passage because it is one that for the first six centuries, the manuscripts that exist from the, the first six centuries in Greek do not really have this portion in there. Uh, there is one early manu- manuscript that actually puts it in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the tone and the voice, uh, you know, how different authors have, uh, you can tell an author by the way they sound and the words they use or whatever, that seems to be more akin to St. Luke than St. John, perhaps. So why is it in John? No one really knows, but it, uh, by uh, the preponderance of the documents, that, uh, the, uh, the, the scriptures that exist, uh, it is in John, so that's why we have it. But the Church in her wisdom gives us it in cycle C, which is focused on the Gospel of St. Luke. No matter where it occurs, though, which Gospel it occurs, both the Gospel of St. Luke and the Gospel, of, uh, the Gospel according to St. Luke and the Gospel according to St. John, already by this point, people are familiar with the message of Jesus, especially the Gospel of St. Luke, it occurs in chapter 21, if, if it occurs there, as if it's placed there. Jesus has been proclaiming mercy, forgiveness, love. In fact, last week we heard the primary parable that speaks of the love of uh, others, of sinners, accepting them back, as we heard the prodigal son, what's often called the prodigal son. I still contend it was really the father who was prodigal, prodigal meaning extravagant, almost wastefully extravagant. So they come with this rather ingenious trap for Jesus. If he really is a preacher of mercy, then he has only one response. But if he responds the other way, he's a heretic. You can't have it both ways, preaching mercy and breaking the law. They bring him this woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I have, a, I have a friend that keeps pointing out, okay, they bring the woman, but where was the man? It takes two to commit adultery. And yeah, that's a good point, but ultimately, they, they weren't concerned. They weren't even really concerned that she was caught in the very act of adultery. All they were concerned about is, here is a trap. Let us get Jesus in it. If he says... Forgive her, do not commit her, uh, do not uh, give capital punishment to her, do not stone her to death. He's violating the law. And if he says, well, stone her to death, he's violating his own preaching. It's a good trap, isn't it? Oh, and as so often these traps with Jesus go, he sees the third way and the better way. He begins, he just ignores the question almost, begins to write on the ground, scribbling with his finger. And well, what is it going to be? Well, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Beautiful answer. Because there was only one in that crowd, we could say with this with absolute confidence, that would have been allowed to cast a stone. That was Jesus himself. And he bends on the ground and begins to write again. Now, lots of people will spend lots and lots of time, as much as uh, time is spent in where, where is this passage really found and which gospel and all that stuff. Even more has been spent on what was Jesus writing? I think if the authors had wanted us to know the answer to that question, they would have told us what Jesus was writing. 
But what they do tell us is interesting. He's writing with his finger. And then they begin to leave one by one, starting with the oldest. That's kind of an odd kind of fact. Unless you begin to realize that the oldest had studied the scriptures longer because they had been alive longer. They had been immersed in the scriptures and perhaps they saw what Jesus was doing. If we recall how God gave them commandments in the first place, how God carved them with the finger, his finger, on stone. And how throughout the scriptures, God promised that he was going to carve a new law on the human heart, a law of love and mercy. Perhaps they left oldest to youngest because those who were older saw that Jesus was writing a new law. He wasn't setting aside the old law, but now writing a new law, a law of mercy. Perhaps they just simply walked away knowing that what they thought was a rather ingenious trap failed. That Jesus really was who he said he was. A man who preached mercy. A God who demonstrated mercy. And when he's left alone with this woman, of course, he dismisses her. And some would say, well, yeah, he, of course, dismisses her, but it's not that he condones the sin. Go. From now on, do not sin anymore. Or the better translation, one that is very clear, stop sinning. He doesn't condone her actions, but she, he gives her another chance. He gives her mercy. And I find myself wondering what happened to that poor woman after this. I can't help but think that she had been confronted and, and brought to that moment where she could have simply been killed. And no one would have blinked an eye. No one would have thought anything else of it. Because mercy, or uh, pride killing and, and uh, protecting family and adultery and all these things, all this killing is all okay. In the culture, it still happens, unfortunately. Women who commit or caught, caught in adultery or, or whatever are put to death. It's horrible. It's terrible. Unfortunately, part of the culture. But Jesus shows mercy. Perhaps she knowing that he had shown her mercy. Perhaps she understood that he alone could have condemned her. I know the joke about the Blessed Mother throwing the stone and, and stuff like that, but I, I think that's rather crass. I'll take, just get that out of your mind. Jesus alone could have condemned her because he could have judged her rightly. She was a sinner. But he called her to repentance. Today in this second reading, we have St. Paul telling us, and if you, again, just recall his life, how he was a sinner of sinners. He put Christians to death. Oh, maybe not exactly himself. His was not the hand that threw the stone. His was not the hand that drew the sword or pounded the nail or did whatever it was that, that killed Christians. But he condoned it. He arrested them. He dragged them back in chains before the Sanhedrin. How many Christians died at his hand? 
And he experienced the mercy of Christ calling him on that road to Damascus. He experienced that mercy of Christ that changed his life. And he says time and again, I I haven't obtained it yet, but I hope to. So I move forward. I keep going forward because I hope to obtain it someday. But right now, not yet. And did you catch that? How he sees everything as nothing. Everything is nothing compared to the mercy that he has in Jesus Christ. In fact, he uses a word here that if I would have used it, I would have been tasting ivory dish soap. He actually writes it out. It's only the only time it occurs in all of Scripture, and it's the S word that we would say. Oh, we're really polite about translating it. We say rubbish. Some, some translations might say dung. Even that's a little polite. He uses the swear word. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's flushable. It's worthless. It's worth absolutely nothing. Everything in this world is worth nothing compared to the mercy of Christ. And do we really understand what that means? Do we really understand what staying in the mercy of Christ means? It would mean that every time we sin, we come back to that mercy of Christ. Oh, Satan tells us, oh, we're caught in our sin. Oh, I have you now, he'll tell us. Oh, you can't progress in holiness because of your past. Perhaps this woman could give us a good testimony. It's not the past that defines us, but God. And God is mercy. It's God who, who calls us, who loves us, who holds us, who forgives us. God alone who can condemn us. And yet, so often, when we're caught in lives of sin, we let Satan define us. Let Satan condemn us. As I keep saying, you know, when Satan reminds us of our past, we can tell him where to go. And it's okay to say it because it's church, but we can tell him to go to hell because that's where he's bound for. He's bound for eternal separation from God. But if we stay in the mercy of Christ, asking for forgiveness, no matter how many times we're caught, no matter what sin it is, even if it's worthy of capital punishment itself. Jesus Christ forgives and forgives, but each time invites us to go and sin no more, to go and change our lives. St. Paul lived that mercy of Christ the rest of his life, knowing that he had not yet obtained it and knowing that he didn't deserve it. This woman, I can't help but think, she lived her life knowing that everything was nothing compared to that forgiveness, that act of mercy that Christ had shown her this particular day as we hear this particular, in this particular passage. How about us? Do we see all this stuff in this world as good as it is, as absolutely nothing compared to the mercy of Christ? And if we do, then do we come back to that mercy time and time and time again, no matter how many times we've sinned? Coming back to the sacrament of reconciliation. Coming back and being nourished with this Eucharist. Coming back with hearts rejoicing because Christ has suffered and died for us to give us forgiveness. That he does not come to condemn, but to redeem us.